Last week, I started preaching out of Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, for part three of my sermon series on wisdom with work. And I overheard on social media that several of you picked up copies of the book already. I think that's fantastic. It is an excellent, excellent book. And as I said last week, I want everyone to pick up a copy of this book. And I'm requiring all of the new Philly leaders to get a paper copy of this book and read it in the new year. It is pivotal. It is just such a weighty piece of literature. It's going to really set the course of our future uh, in the right direction in regards to uh, what most of you do throughout most of the week, you know? And so we want a good, strong theology uh, regards to work. And so I want to encourage you guys to pick up a copy of that book. As I promised, I will preach two more messages in this sermon series using Keller's book. And uh, as I said last week, I'm very, very excited to preach today's message, part four. Uh, last week, I began with the question, how do you view work? And I confronted commonly held beliefs that work is at best a means to get a paycheck so that you can enjoy life outside the workplace. Or that work is at worst a a curse or a punishment. And I concluded the sermon by challenging you to honor God's design of work and its inherent goodness and also to honor work's limits and uh, not idolize it or overwork yourself. And so I just kind of landed the sermon there with that balance uh, regards to our theology of work. You know, and as I reflected on this message, I feel like I got this revelation that Steve Jobs, you know, our former CEO of Apple, had a closer biblical theology of work than Bill Gates of Microsoft. <laughs> and let me explain. You know, I honor Bill Gates for using his billions to help people uh, in uh fund their education, philanthropy. He does a lot of philanthropy work with his wife. But where Gates, he saw his work as a means to find meaning elsewhere in life, Steve Jobs saw meaning in the work he was called to do. Think about that. Uh, You know, like Bill Gates, at a certain point, he just lost interest in doing work at Microsoft. And he just gave it over to Steve Ballmer. And Microsoft just kind of like, you know, it's not very doing anything very innovative, you know. I think they're trying to make a comeback right now. but uh, And whether you have a Samsung Galaxy or an iPhone, I think it is fair to say that Steve Jobs has added incredible value to our world through the innovative products and design that he worked hard to produce. And why did he work so hard? Because he saw value in his work. And I feel that Apple has consistently turned out products that uphold a beautiful marriage between aesthetics, beauty, and utility, usefulness. And so, you know, I was just kind of thinking about my message last week. I just got that revelation. I just want to share that with y'all. All right. I, I really, I really think, you know, Steve Jobs, he had a closer biblical, you know, we don't know if he's a Christian or not. He, most people say he wasn't, but you know, he, I think he had a closer theology of work. Anyways, last week I began with the question, how do you view work? Today I want to begin with the question, why? Everybody say why. Why are you pursuing the work you pursue? So last week, the message convinced you to begin viewing work with joy and with purpose as you better understood God's design. You know, God works and then he puts a mandate on us to subdue the earth through work. 
You see work now as a blessing. But my question for you today is, why do you have the ambitions for the career path that you're currently on? Why do you want to be a lawyer or a doctor or an entrepreneur or a full-time minister? Why? And I want to uh, begin by going over some material from Keller's book that analyzes, once again, the ancient Greeks' view of work. Italian philosopher Adriano Tugger said, To the Greeks, work was a curse and nothing else. This is because the Greeks believed that the gods made human beings to do work. So work is seen as something that is lowly and degrading. It's not something the gods do. It is what the human beings do. Plato taught that the human body hinders the soul's quest for truth. And so self-denial is essential to purifying yourself so you can achieve the higher forms of thought and philosophy and you know, spiritual insight. Greek philosophers portrayed the gods as perfect minds who were self-sufficient and not tied down to the material world. Man can become like the gods by withdrawing from the world through contemplation, like meditation, deep meditation. Contemplation was the method by which, by which one could discover that this material world that we live in is temporary. And it's an illusion. And getting too involved in the material world makes you susceptible to animal beastly-like Instincts like fear and anger and anxiety. And the Greeks saw these things as negative. So the Greeks essentially taught that the highest kind of life was one that was the least involved and the least invested in the material world. So due to this philosophy, work was seen as a hindrance for the soul to rise above the mundane and into the higher domain of the gods. The Greeks also believed that not all work was created equal. Work that used the mind was esteemed as noble, as high and valued. But manual labor, like farming and taking care of sheep, was viewed as the work of beasts. Everybody with me? Man, you guys, I, you, you guys just like tuned out for a second. You guys with me here? All right, the gist of it is, <laughs> wait, wait, like, is this the way you treat your college lectures, college students? Oh, it feels like a college lecture. I'm, 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 I'm checking out for a second. All right, at least here at Hongdae, I don't know. I, I'm sure you guys are very attentive at Itaewon and at Shilim and at Sydney. I don't know about Busan. I'm, I'm playing. No, I, I'm sure you guys are all attentive. Uh, but the, the, the gist of what I just said was the Greeks had a very low view of work. And the Greek social system upheld a structure where slaves and other lower class people did the manual labor so that the elite were freed up to devote themselves to the higher work of applying their mind to the arts, philosophy, politics. Aristotle famously said, that some people 
are born to be slaves. And what he meant by this was that some people are not capable of higher rational thought. And they should therefore accept manual labor type work so that other stronger minded individuals can be freed up to better pursue a life of honor and culture. Now, we may be offended at what Aristotle said, especially because we have an aversion to the idea of slavery. But Christian philosopher Lee Hardy points out that the Greek attitude toward work was mostly preserved in both the thought and practice of the Christian church throughout history and continues to impact and influence the church today. So Tim Keller, he breaks down two Western presuppositions that we've inherited from Greek philosophy. Okay, I'm going to point out those two right now. First, many of us, because of Greek philosophy's influence, many of us believe that work is a necessary evil. According to this view, work is only good if it gives me the money to support my family And eventually make so much money, I can pay others to do the menial work. Second, many higher educated folks believe that lower status or lower paying work is an assault to our dignity. Okay, so Keller breaks down these two presuppositions. One, many of us believe work is a necessary evil. It's only good if it gives us the money to be able to pay others to do all the manual labor. Number two, if we are regulated ever to do manual labor, it is an assault to our dignity, especially if we have a college degree or two college degrees or a doctorate degree. I'm, I ain't going to get my hands dirty. Are you crazy? That attitude was passed down to us, inherited to us by the Greeks. Now, when I was reading this portion of Keller's book, I felt like a veil was removed from my eyes. And I had this moment of enlightenment. You see, as a result of these hidden presuppositions, so many people in our society today, they pursue professions like being a doctor, lawyer, professor, not because these careers fit their gift and calling and passion, but because these careers command higher wages and social status. And so you have all these people that have status but are miserable. Or they're driving nice cars, but they hate going to the work that that car is driving them to. In America, there is a great social divide between the highly compensated college-educated class and the poorly compensated service sector. Whether we are Christians or not, many of us accept these social divisions And perpetuate the prejudices contained therein. I mean, when people get their master's and doctorate degrees or they make their millions in the tech industry, a lot of people, they often carry this aristocratic contempt. It's the best way I can kind of describe snobbishness. (laughs) Aristocratic contempt. That's my, my, my term right there. I coined that myself, okay? We have this, like, you know, aristocratic contempt toward waiters, busboys. 
bellboys, um, boys, <laughs> uh, dry cleaners, uh, migrant workers in America, mostly mi- mi- migrant workers are Mexicans. In Korea, they're the Filipinos, the Chosunjok people. In uh, Hong Kong, they're the Indonesians and the Filipinos. Migrant workers. We have this snobbish attitude toward those who have low-paying service jobs. And I found this to be true, not only in America, but in Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, all these Asian, Beijing, when I was in Beijing. And if you ever watch American movies or sitcoms, they love writing plots around how an aristocratic girl from a rich and powerful family falls in love with the towel boy or the lifeguard at the country club. Or in recent Korean dramas, you have the story of the handsome, rich young men from high-class families falling in love with a poor waitress girl whose mom is a mute housekeeper. I mean, people love these stories. They fascinate people because they rarely happen in real life. And the poor, they're able to live vicariously through their heroine, their the, the different poor characters in the story, while the super rich uh, sons, you know, they're controlled by their parents, they dream of falling in love with someone they, they, they actually love, and not, not marry because of just social status. You know, they dream of walking away from the wedding for, the, for, the, for that girl, that wait, waiter girl at the cafe. You know? And people get fascinated by these stories. They, these, these stories make a lot of money because it rarely happens in real life. There is a great social divide. You know, A big uh, problem that America dealt with for a long time after the 2008 financial crisis was a high unemployment rate. And I remember reading and watching news stories covering these uh, high unemployment rates. And I initially thought, man, all these poor people who can't find a job. Man, just, I just really feel for them. But the more I observed and the more stories I heard, I realized that some Americans weren't unemployed because there was a lack of jobs. But they were unemployed because they refused to take jobs that they felt overqualified for or work that they felt was beneath them. I mean, this is not just people who've been in the in, in workforce for like 15 years. This is, we're talking about college, recent college graduates that refuse to take these types of menial jobs. And I can understand holding out for a bit, but when months and even years go by and they just continue to wait and wait and collect taxpayer dollars in the form of unemployment checks... While they're at home playing Nintendo and, and PlayStation 3, video games to pass the time just because they refuse to humble themselves and take on the jobs that are available. When I thought about that, this situation infuriated me. That all these people, they, they have this entitlement to these unemployment checks. They have this entitlement they have this pride and arrogance. I will never take on those types of jobs. It's as good as, have, it's, it's as if there is no job. Why would I ever take on those types of jobs? And you know, sadly, when I looked around the church, I feel like we are not exempt from this aristocratic haughtiness 
Here's a scenario. If you are well-educated and you lost your high-paying job today and the economy got really bad and you could not find a suitable job for over nine months, would you be willing to work at a McDonald's? Would you be willing to work at a McDonald's, KFC, Popeye's? Yeah, they're all the same. Maybe some are seen as being more higher status than others. I don't know. <laughs> would you be, excuse me, would you be willing to work at a McDonald's? <laughs> I'm feeling good. I'm feeling healthy. <clears throat> if you are willing, think about practically how you would feel putting on that uniform and then having to face your friend's father who comes in by chance as you stand behind the cashier. Would you run to the back of the kitchen or would you stand there? And if you stood there facing your friend's father, how would it make you feel? Would you feel angry? Sad? If you're angry, who would you be angry at? Your parents? The government? God? At yourself? Would you feel that a lower status or lower paying job, would it assault your dignity? And you know what? Personally, I have to be careful before I answer that question. Because I realize that these Western presuppositions, they're deeply ingrained in me as well. Now, what I just described, this is how the world thinks. This is the pattern of the world when it comes to work. Very highly influenced by Western philosophy. Seeing manual labor and work and low-paying service sector jobs as being inferior. As being something that only lowly do. This is the world's view. But the Bible commands us not to be conformed to the patterns of this world. The Bible has a different way of thinking of work. So what does the Bible have to say about work? Let's turn to Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. I'm going to read that in the ESV. Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. I'm going to read that in the ESV. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. According to the Bible, God doesn't create man to do his dirty work on the earth. No, that's not what we find here. What we find is that God is described as a worker. And then he makes mankind in his image, not an inferior image, but it says in God's image. And then he sets them apart to have dominion over the earth. 
Biblical scholar Derek Kittner points out that in Genesis 1, God creates both animals and mankind, but he only gives mankind a job description. You see, for the animals, they are called by God to simply grow and be and run around and eat and poo and have babies. But mankind is given work to do. So the the Bible uses work to distinguish and elevate mankind above animals. It's completely backwards from the Greek philosophy. You know, the picture we get is not of the monkeys going, "Ah, look at all them humans. They got to do work, 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 work. While we get to just chill and scratch our butts all day. Yeah, we got it good. That's not the picture of the monkeys, all right? No, the monkeys are going, oh man, the authority of God is on mankind. They be building cities, computers, airplanes, and putting us in zoos for their entertainment. <laughs> man, I wish God gave me a job. That's what the monkeys are thinking. I'm telling you right now, if you could get into the mind of a monkey, the monkey's going, I wish God would give me a job. I feel, I feel so jealous. Keller points out in his book that in the ancient Near East, kings and rulers would set up these huge monuments and images of themselves in the areas where they would have authority and jurisdiction. And these images and statues were there to display their presence and authority. In a similar way, we, since we are created in God's image, the Bible is telling us that we are We are on the earth to represent God's authority as his royal ambassadors. We are reminders to the created order and to the animals and to the plants that God is in charge. And mankind is there to steward that authority and subdue the earth. Tim Keller says it like this. We share in doing the things that God has done in creation. Bringing order out of chaos. Creatively building a civilization out of the material of physical and human nature. Caring for all that God has made. This is a major part of what we were created to be. The Greeks saw manual labor as degrading mankind to the animal level. But the Bible shows us that any kind of work that's assigned by God, whether that's a work of the mind or of the hands, any kind of work assigned by God actually elevates mankind above the animals. You guys just catch what I just said. We have dignity as man, men and women, we have dignity because of the work assignments that God gives us. The work does not degrade our dignity. The work actually uh, grants us a sense of dignity. So it's completely opposite to what um, Aristotle and Plato and the Greek philosophers thought. Tim Keller says it like this. Work has dignity because it is something that God does. And because we do it in God's place as his representatives. Let me ask you a question, going off my, away from my manuscript for a second. What if 
God asks you to do something, would there be anything too small that he can ask you to do? I mean, I mean, even if you, if you had, um, I don't know who's somebody you, Australians, Queen Elizabeth comes into this room or for Americans, um, who's someone you esteem, um, we esteem uh, President President Obama, right? He just comes in, right? And President Obama goes, "Hey, I'm, I'm thirsty. Can someone can someone get me a drink? Hey, uh, hey Jody, could you get me a drink? You know, uh, Jody's a Filipino. I'm asking Robert. <laughs> um, um, David Hahn, could you get me a drink? You know, if the president of the United States asked you for to get go get you a drink, would, would you be like, I ain't getting you a drink? I'm, I got a college education. Are you kidding me? What you asking me that for? Who do you think you are? I mean, was there too, something too small that the president of the United States can ask you to do? Hey, can you just pick up that piece of trash on the, on, on the floor? I ain't picking on no piece of trash. Can you, can you, can you? Help me out with the carpet. I got I to vacuum the carpet, but I got an important meeting that the whole national security of the, uh, of the entire country is hanging on. I just want to attend to that. Can you just help me vacuum the floor for a second? Is there something too small that the President of the United States or Queen Elizabeth or somebody you esteem, is there, is there anything too small that they can ask you to do? Well, same way. Is there anything too small that God can ask you to do? And why do we even look at it as small? Is God the, the God who only assigns work? That is work of philosophy and politics and arts and of just the mind? Is God not only the God who also assigns that work, but also assigns the work of construction work? Gardening? Chefs and cooks? Is not God the one who assigns all kinds of different work? That may require you to get your hands a little dirty. Is there anything too small that God can ask you to do? Think about that. You know, um, a couple weeks ago, right before I got my second dilation done to improve my digestion, I had fasted for two days. And I, as Aaron and I were on the way to the hospital, you know, I, I hadn't eaten anything for two days. And it wasn't just like, I was, I was feeling weak. And that day I couldn't even drink water because I had to get prepared prepare for the dilation. So I'm feeling pretty weak. And as I'm going up the subway stairs, there's this Korean harabaji, this old uh, Korean elderly man. And he says something to me in Korean. But I'm just like, we're, we're, we're trying to catch the bus. We're on a rush. So I just kind of passed him by. But after I passed him by, I kind of stopped, and I realized he was trying to talk to me. So I went back to the Harabaji, and then we're late for our uh, appointment. We're, you know, we need to get there on time and stuff. And I asked him, oh, oh you know, what, what is it that you need? And I didn't, I didn't understand what he was saying because he, he had no teeth, and he was, he was old, he was all wrinkly. It was super cold that day as well. And, you know, if you fast and you don't eat anything, your body is very cold. And I looked at over to his little cart, this broken, nasty cart, and he had like five, four boxes, four or five, I think it's five boxes of clementines, cure. He had all these cure boxes. Uh, clementines are little, tiny little oranges in Korea that are very popular to peel and eat. Uh, and some of these boxes were wet, and he was just trying to get it down the stairs so that he can sell them or whatnot. And now, 
I was like, all right, I'll help you with one or two boxes. But look, man, I'm fasting. All right, I'm about to go get a dilation thing done. All right, I mean, you should just be happy with. But I remember that previous Sunday, I had just preached my second message on the theology of work. And I talked about the story of Rebecca and how in the everyday normal routine of her life, Abraham's servant asked her, you know, can you, you know, uh, and she offered. Actually, he didn't even ask. She offered to water the camels. And then when she realized that there were all these camels and how much camels can drink, she still went ahead and finished it all the way to the end. And she did it not for a reward. She just did it out of the goodness of the work she believed in. That she believed that I ought to bless, I ought to add value to the world around me. I shouldn't just work for my own selfish interests. And as she did that, it actually led her to her calling to marry um, Abraham's son, Isaac. And so I had just preached that message. So I'm going, all right, God, is this you here? And so I take down the first box. The box is all wet, so it's like falling apart. And I go back and try to pick up two more this time because, you know, I'm, I'm just, let me get this over with. Right? And as, as I go back up, you know, he, he can't really talk, so I don't really know what he's saying. But, you know, he's like, yeah, over here, over there. And then when I put the box down here, when, I got, when he got down to the bottom of the stairs, he said, I need it over there. And so I have to move it again. And as I walked away after helping him out, I just felt a prompting in my, in my heart. You did well, son. Thank you. You did well. I was like, well, what do you mean, Lord? Well, I, I asked you to pick up a box. I asked you to pick up several boxes of clementines, even though you're fasting. And, and you did it. No, no, it wasn't you, Lord. It was this old man who, who couldn't really talk. I didn't even understand him. And the, have you not seen it read? Have you not seen it written? When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And many people will say to me on that day, when do we see you naked and hungry and in prison? And Jesus will say, the least you did unto these, you did it unto me. And I just realized, man, God, you set me up. You know, Christian, I'm proud of you. You preach, you lead the church, you're building up a dynamic movement here at New Philly. You're touching many people's lives. But can you pick up a few boxes of Clementines for me when you're feeling weak and late to something? And I, I realize once again, there is God, there is nothing too small you can ask of me. I'm asking you that today. If you lost your job, your high-paying job, and you had to work at a McDonald's, but if God asked you to work at McDonald's, would you do it? And perhaps through the different seasons and economies that we face in life, maybe there are times where God says, can you work at a McDonald's for me? Not for the paycheck. Don't do it for the paycheck. Will you do it for me? Is this such an assault on your pride and dignity that you can't take a job at McDonald's for, for a season? Anyway, man, that, that, those boxes of clementines, man, they haunt me. They haunt me because I, I feel like God used that test to qualify me. I just felt like as I was on the way to the hospital, I just felt like God was like, you broke through. I'm, I'm, I'm promoting you. 
I'm taking you into the new things. What? God, wait, hold on. If I didn't do that, what would have meant? <laughs> but I just felt like, hey, don't worry about that, son. The important thing is you did it. You had a good attitude. You had a good heart. I'm proud of you. Is there anything too small that God can ask of you to do? And as Christians, why would we ever feel doing label, manual labor is an assault on our dignity? Do, does our worth and value really, are we, is it primarily derived from work? Or is it derived from the God who calls us to all kinds of different work? Not only does work contain dignity, but all kinds of work have dignity. In Genesis 2, verses 5 through 8, it tells us that before God created man, he was watering the ground himself. And then God took the dust of the ground, and then he formed man, and he personally breathed breath into his nostrils, and the man became a living creature. And then God planted a garden, and then eventually, in verse 15, he gave that garden over to Adam to work it. You see, the God of the Bible is unlike the high, snobbish Greek gods who refuse to do any labor labor or work. The God of the Bible, he rolls up his sleeves and he doesn't mind getting his hands dirty in order to plant a garden or make living creatures out of dust. That is the God that we serve and worship. Not these Greek gods that are aloof. And when they're aristocratic haughtiness. Author Philip Jensen said it like this. Listen to this. If God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. To the ancient Romans, they might have looked for a just and noble statesman, politician. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? As a carpenter. You know, we want to perpetuate all this social divide and social status values. But the very incarnation of Jesus Christ ought to shatter all that. The Genesis account of creation and the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ alone should violently shatter our Western presuppositions and prejudices toward how we attribute dignity to work. It should violently shatter how we see and behave toward people who do low-paying manual jobs. It ought to shatter... Our pride and refusal to work at jobs that we find disdainful. The Genesis account and the incarnation alone ought to renew our minds over these presuppositions we've inherited. Why is it that so many young Christians would rather embrace indefinite unemployment or accumulate massive debt going back to grad school to study something they have no high interest in? Why is this the norm? Why is this more appealing than humbling oneself and taking on a manual labor job? Christians, of all people, 
should be capable of leaving their million dollar corporate jobs to volunteer at an orphanage or work in the slums if God calls them to do that. Because for the Christian, their value is not derived from the kind of work that they do, but the kind of God who caused them to do it. This is what it means to believe the gospel. The gospel preaches a radical inclusivism that shatters every racial, ethnic, or social status wall. Colossians 3.11 says, Here, there is no Greek, Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Turn to your neighbor, tell him, there is no slave or free. Christ is all. You know, it's easy in our community, at least here in Korea, most of our young adult community, maybe with the exception of Australia, we have some different situations in Australia, but at least in Korea, majority of you are college educated. And the few people that couldn't get a college degree, you often have to fight off feelings of insecurity and inferiority. Because everybody takes for granted these social status prejudices that we uphold. And it's easy for us to conclude, oh yeah, we're good Christians. Oh yeah, we, we love the poor. Oh yeah, I, yeah, I'm humble. I want us to really examine as a community today the attitudes that we hold. Because I don't think they've been properly challenged. If God has called someone to some kind of work, we should never look down on that work. No matter how menial or dirty it is. Amen? Amen. Keller says, no task is too small a vessel To hold the immense dignity of work given by God. Dignity comes from God. Not from the work. And for God, he assigns all kinds of work. Keller points out something fascinating. That's worth mentioning here. In Psalm 65 and in Psalm 104. God is described as watering the ground through rain and showers. And then through his spirit, renewing the face of the ground. It's very agricultural. You know, God. And then in John 16, the Holy Spirit is described as coming to convict people of sin and judgment. So, what is the Bible saying? The Bible is saying the Holy Spirit is involved in both agriculture and in preaching. He personally brings water when it's needed. And he personally brings conviction when it's needed. So, we have no right to see one work as sacred and high and esteemed, and then see the other one as secular and low and degrading. God is directly involved in both kinds of work. And therefore, we ought to also esteem both kinds of work. Amen? You know, many people pursue work today, not because they're called to it, but because it promises them status, comfort, security, a higher standard of living. So let me ask you a question from the very beginning of my sermon. Why? 
Why are you pursuing the work that you are pursuing? Why do you have the ambitions for the career path you're currently on? Why do you want to be a lawyer or professor or entrepreneur or full-time minister? Did your parents pressure you toward it? Or is it God's call that is pulling you toward it? Why? Why do you insist on leaving Korea? Why must you have a particular type of high paying job and live a particular standard of living? What if God is calling you right now to lay down those values and embrace a more humble standard of living so that you can build up a powerful house of God here in Korea? What if, what if God called you that? Would that insult you? Would that be offensive to you? Would you consider a life lived in such a way a waste? Why? Well, God, I got to get mine, all right? You don't understand. I went through all that school, all that expensive tuition. I got to get mine. Why are you pursuing what you pursue? That's a very important question. Because for a lot of Asian American Christians, they never ask this question. They just autopilot do it. Because that's what a good Asian children do. Maldero. You know, the virtuous thing to do in the Asian civilization is to listen to your parents. That's the, that the highest form of virtue in Asian society. So a lot of Asian, Asian Christians, they don't ask this question. These young people don't ask, why? Why am I doing this? Until maybe it's too late. Until maybe it's, they're so disillusioned. Why did I even marry this person? And some people marry for social status. You think that doesn't happen. But I'm telling you, Korean dramas can write plenty of stories like this because it happens all the time. Work is God's design for mankind. Amen. And it is God's design that work give us a sense of dignity as human beings, regardless of status or pay. The material world may have been affected by sin, but it is not inherently evil or bad. When God created the material world, he called it good. And according to the Bible, he has a plan to redeem the material world with a new city and a new heavens, a new earth. The world that we will live in when Jesus returns is a material world, brothers and sisters. It is not a bunch of disembodied spirits floating around. Oh, I miss those days of eating steak. No, there will be eating and bike riding and swimming at the renewal of all things. So whether we work with our mind or on our computers or we get our hands dirty in construction, gaining this biblical foundation, it gives us the freedom to truly seek the call of God on our lives. The call that fits our gifts and passions. Ambitions that are not driven by desire for financial security or status. We can be open to a wider array of opportunities for work in the various seasons of life God brings us through. And we have no longer any basis 
for aristocratic contempt or condescension or snobbery. We have no basis either for envy or insecurity. Well, you know, I have to work as a, as a cleaning. I have to work cleaning restrooms at an airport. But my friend, you know, she's a corporate executive at Asiana. So many people would look at that and they would have envy, insecurity. They would look down on themselves. But God doesn't want his children to look, and look at themselves that way. If the work was assigned by God, you clean them bathrooms with all your heart and you do it on to the Lord. Because let me tell you something, when the new world comes, there's going to be a radically different value system there. Where the people that were not esteemed in this life will be highly esteemed in the next. When John the Baptist was on the earth, people looked down on him. He was dirty. He wore camel's skin and ate locusts and honey. What a wild, barbaric, beastly man. I mean, think about what the Romans and the, and the Greeks thought of him at that time. Well, even the Jews were like, oh, he's so disgusting. And the Pharisees, they were the aristocratic, high social class people at that time, you know? And they, 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 they looked down on him. But Jesus said of John the Baptist, among those born of women, there is no one greater than he. That's quite an assessment for a person that was socially shunned for most of his life. Don't embrace these social values, these king. Don't embrace it when the world arrives. Embrace it now because the world, the kingdom is already here. Y'all feel me? So the most important question then becomes, are you, pull, are you pursuing God's calling or are you pursuing social status? Are you being true to your gifts and passion and call? Or are you just trying to run away from financial insecurity? Make sure that you don't let the economy ever get you unemployed and, and, and poor. As it says in Romans 12, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve of God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's important that we identify these presuppositions and that we free ourselves from its influences or else we're going to continue to live our lives and do our work and see people are the butlers and the bellboys. You know, we're going to continue to see them with the patterns of the world. But for God, God's system is different. Jesus teaches us the least you've done unto these, you've done unto me. That's crazy. Like, like when I get to heaven, I think one of the highlights of my life is not going to be preaching this sermon. Heaven's going to celebrate the video of me going up and down the stairs with them Clementine boxes. <laughs> They're like, oh, that was like MVP moment right there. You know, <laughs> Christians often is very selfish and very driven, only concerning himself. But that day, because of that sermon he preached, you know, God was sovereign to make sure that sermon went before that incident. He went back to that old man and he helped him out. And he did it. Realized later that it was, he was doing it for Jesus. 
I'm going to close so I can close within one hour. I'm going to close right now. I have, I have a couple things here. I was going to share Kurt Warner's testimony. He's an NFL quarterback. He's an incredible testimony. NFL Films just published his uh, documentary of his life the other day. It's called NFL Films Presents uh, a Football Life with Kurt Warner. If you have NFL Network, you've got to watch this documentary. I mean, it is such an incredible life Kurt Warner lived. I was going to share that, but I don't have enough time. I'm not going to share that. If you ever want to find out about Kurt Warner, he was a quarterback with the St. Louis Rams and then later on with the Arizona Cardinals. His life story is incredible. And when I look at his life story, because he, he got saved somewhere in the middle of his story. I mean, it has the fingerprints of God written all over it. And I was going to share Kurt Warner's testimony, and then I was going to share my testimony about how over the years, I, how I got to where I am today. And that it was not a glamorous road. And that there were many humble jobs God assigned me in between. You know, at, at one point after I graduated, I got laid off from a fairly decent social status job for a NYU Stern Business graduate job. You know, I had a decent job. And actually, I was, go- I was at the final interviews for a position at Citigroup, working right down in, in, in um, Battery Park. And then, and then I went to final rounds, and I didn't get it. And then they surprised me by calling me back and said, I, I, we know you didn't get it with this department, but there's another department head that wants to really meet you because he's really interested in you. So they brought me in for a second final round. I still didn't get it. So I was like, man, I want to work down in Wall Street. I want to work in, in Manhattan. When, when can I get this job? So, but I ended up getting another software um, testing job. It was a decent, high-paid job. And I was there. And then 9-11 happened. Right across the river from where we were, my sister and I were living. And when I saw the Twin Towers falling down, I mean, I realized, man, this is serious stuff. And then the economy took a dive. I got laid off. And I can't tell you the whole story, but in between, God started speaking things over me. And he said, Christian, Brother Michael, my college mentor, he prophesied, Christian, God's going to show you favor in the eyes of those in high positions of leadership. And this is his plan for your life, not as a work, as a result of your diligence or work. It's going to be his grace and favor. He's going to show you favor. As after he prophesied that, I started getting all this favor from people in high positions of leadership. But even as that was happening and God was calling me into the ministry, you know, I had to take on all these jobs. One was working as a legal assistant for a law firm. And when I used to work at that law firm, I had to humble myself. And I did the menial and manual labor of making copies Walking to the post office and getting certified mail. Um, answering the telephone and dealing with all kinds of people who are on the verge of divorce or real estate problems and deed problems. I had to do all this menial work. And I used to sit there thinking, man, I graduated from NYU Stern. What is this, Lord? What am I doing? But I humble myself. Because I realized that job was God's provision for me. It was his plan for me because my plan was to go to the Air Force. After 9-11 happened, I was like, oh, I'm going to get Osama. Oh, it's on. It's on. So I applied to be an Air Force officer. Right after 9-11 happened, I got laid off of my job. I applied to be an Air Force officer. My mom was all crying. She's like, why are you doing this to me, son? I was like, oh, my God. Don't worry. I'll just get Osama and I'll be right back. All right? I'll be right back. 
God closed that door. And after I, God closed that door, you know, I had to go work at these, these menial jobs. But all along the way, just like in Kurt Warner's story, he, he takes on a job at a, at a grocery store making five fifty an hour while he's trying to compete for the NFL and getting cut. And, and, then, and then he falls in love with a girl that has two boys already. One is a two, uh, uh, two children already. One's a little boy who's blind. And he falls in love with that girl. But he, he decides to still pursue um, that love relationship with her. It's crazy. And then he goes into the Arena Football League. Anyway, you got, you got to get a story at some point. But the point of the story is, his first year in the NFL, he comes in and he breaks all kinds of NFL records. This is his first year. First year in the NFL. He was a nobody, undrafted. Nobody know, didn't know who he was. He comes in. It's right after he got saved as well. He got right, right when he got saved, I think he had a renewal of the mind about, he realized that football was not just his ambition. He realized that this thing that he had been carrying all this time, it was God's calling. And God was saying, this is your time. So in 1998, he went in and, and he was a backup quarterback for the St. Louis Rams. And then um, uh, the starting quarterback, he got injured in the preseason and he had to step in. And during that whole season, he broke all these records through 41 touchdowns. That was crazy. You got to see this documentary. It's crazy. Okay. Anyway, he not only breaks records, he goes on and he wins the MVP for the entire league. And he leads the Rams to a Super Bowl championship. In the first year of his NFL season. Crazy, right? It's crazy. <laughs> but what I was going to say, from, I'm giving you like the three-minute version of what I was going to say. I'm, I'm only on three minutes. All right, give me, give me, give me just 30 more seconds. <laughs> but I'm just saying that Kurt Warner's road to the Super Bowl, that calling that God had on his life, it wasn't pretty. And along the way, he had to join the Arena Football League. He had to work at a grocery store. He had to love on two kids that weren't not his own. But Kurt Warner, he humbled himself. and said, God, if this is the work you've assigned me for this season, I'm going to do it with all my heart. And when he played Arena Football, he played with all of his heart. He broke all these records at Arena Football. And that opened the door for him to go into the NFL. But most people would have looked down on arena football because, you know, if you know Americans, man, they don't like arena football. They just, what is arena football? Who does that? But Kurt Warner, the reason his story is so amazing is because he embraced it. And you see, God's not interested in writing smooth stories. Our God loves drama. He's all about writing fascinating stories that are memorable, that demonstrate his heart and his grace. So if you're in a situation today and things are not going your way, don't feel all bad for yourself and be, get a victim mentality. Oh, please. You are sons and daughters of the Most High God. You have a sovereign God who has a plan for your life. He'll make all the dots connect. But as you are doing the assignments you're doing now, humbly embrace it and do it with joy. Do it with innovation. Do it with creativity. Do it with all your heart, knowing that God is taking you somewhere. Don't fall into this Greek haughtiness of, oh, I don't do that kind of stuff. I want to be like the gods. No, if you want to be like the true God, you'll be willing to do carpentry. It's just an incredible thing, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So incredible. 
So don't look for the call of God in all the wrong places. And don't miss Jesus when he's asking you to take down some Clementine boxes down the stairs for you. Jesus comes in unexpected ways. So don't pursue status. Pursue and obey the call of God. Amen? And we close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for each and every person in this room. I'm praying, Lord, that today there will be a renewal of the mind. A renewal of the mind that will govern people's decisions in a radically new way. That because you are the God who assigns all kinds of work, there will be no kind of work that your sons and daughters are not willing to embrace and do with joy if it is, the, if it is given by you. So many people, they are missing out on God's plan for their life because they refuse to humble themselves because they refuse to see God's fingerprints in all of the various fascinating dramatic stories he writes. But Father, I'm praying today that New Philly will be a different kind of remnant. A people of God that find joy in every assignment given by God. A people that don't primarily pursue careers for status and standards of living. But they do it for the joy of doing your will. They do it for the joy of glorifying your name and fulfilling your plans. And we know that whether we get high standards of living on this side of the earth or not, on this side of life, we know that at the renewal of all things, we're going to all enjoy it. We're going to all revel in it. We're all going to enjoy the grand blessings and opulence of the new heavens and the new earth. And so, Father, I thank you that in all the stories you write in our lives, there is nothing that anyone is going to be missing out on. So write your story in our lives, God. Write your story in our lives, Lord. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll stand to our feet.